Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, welcome once again to everyone joining us online this morning. Can I please ask you to open up your Bible with me to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 4, and we are closing in on the last couple of verses of this book. So next week, we finish up this incredible journey we've had through this letter to a pressured and persecuted church. And today, we're going to tackle this very strange and yet so significant topic as we're starting to close out our series called Rooted Hope, Our New Normal. Now, if you grew up in the 90s and early 2000s as I did, then you would know that there was this time where we had a string of what they would call these end-of-the-world movies. So you had like Armageddon and Deep Impact and Independence Day and 2012 and the, you know, the day after tomorrow, all these movies, and they pretty much always went down the same way. It's some kind of comet or asteroid or ecological event or aliens that are going to end everything, and then a bunch of really good-looking Americans. Of course, why? Because they make all the movies. They are going to solve all of our issues. But it's actually a good question. How would you live if you knew that the world was coming to an end? So there's a couple of movies that tackle this more directly. So uh, 2012 movie, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, uh, Steve Carell is caught in this position where an asteroid is about to hit the Earth. And so he decides to go and set out with Karen Knightley to find this long-lost love of his. So maybe love is the answer. That's what you do when the world is coming to an end. Or the 2009 movie Knowing, where Nicolas Cage, mind you, plays a professor who's found this code which he thinks points to the end of the world. And so he wants to figure it out. Maybe that's the answer. In those last moments, you try and decipher the mystery. Or then finally, 2015 movie, These Final Hours, where a comet has actually collided with the Earth, and it's about 10 hours before this, this stream of fire hits Australia, and this main character called James, he wants to spend these last moments in what they call the party to end all parties. So is that the answer? Is it love? Is it figuring out the puzzle? Is it just having a good time as the world burns? How do you live when, as R.E.M. would say, it's the end of the... Yeah, okay, so I'm not going to sing that song. We all know it. It's not great. But that's the question. When it's the end of the world as we know it, how do you live? And Peter dives into that today. So read with me verse number seven. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So Peter starts with this very bold statement. It's almost like one of those clickbait titles. You know, you won't believe what Peter said about the end of the world. He says, the end of all things is near. But I think that often in Christian circles, we take that idea of the end of all things and we take it to two extremes, neither of which I think is helpful. So let's address those two really quickly. 
The first extreme with this idea of the end of the world, Armageddon, the apocalypse, it's all coming to an end, is that we obsess over the details of Peter's statement. We obsess over the details. You see, there's this small little subculture in the Christian faith, especially if you're not a Christian, it's it's important to note that. It's a small subculture that sees the Bible as this code, this cipher that has to be figured out, that points to mysterious future events. And our calling is to try and put it all together. So it's a very much, you know, a tinfoil hat conspiracy theory, join all the dots kind of enterprise. But the question is, should we be doing that? And so, I mean, this is a massive topic. It's often in theology called eschatology, the study of the end times. And like I said, it's a huge topic, but let me just give us a couple of thoughts for today. The first one is this. Is it actually the end of the world? Especially in crazy corona times, everyone apparently and their grandmother is saying, the Bible says it's the end. So is it the end of the world? And the answer is, that depends on what you mean by the end of the world. Because you see, Peter and the rest of the New Testament writers, very different from some of the Christians and teachers and end-time prophets of today, who give us some kind of date, and it's like this clock that's counting down, and it's like an episode of 24, and Jack Bauer's running against the clock. No, they had a different view. They pretty much had something that's much more aligned with the idea of the last chapter of a book or the last act of a play that has now been announced. And we are now living in the midst of that last moment. So listen to what the Bible says. There are so many scriptures, but I'll just give you two from the book of Hebrews. It says in Hebrews 1 verse 1, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, so it's speaking about this time frame, he has spoken to us by his son. So what Jesus has done has announced the last days. And then Hebrews 9, 26, it says, but now he has appeared, speaking of Jesus, one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Peter and the New Testament authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit believed that when Jesus stepped into history, when God stepped into our reality and the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and his life, death, and resurrection, and his raising from the dead, and, and, you know, being glorified at the right hand of God, those are all signs of the fact that we've entered into the final chapter of mankind's story. It's the last act. But whether that act is still a hundred thousand years, or whether it's the next hundred days or seconds, that's irrelevant, So number two, are we supposed to figure out the details? Are we supposed to figure out the details? And I want to say the short answer, I think, is no, according to the Bible. So again, many scriptures we could go to, but let me just give you one or two. Acts 1 verse 7, Jesus speaking, and he says, He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Or Mark 13, 32, again, Jesus speaking. Now, concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Or well, 1 Thessalonians 5.1, Paul speaking, and he says, About the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. 
Why? For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So all throughout the Bible, we see this idea that yes, God is going to finish up his renewal project, the new heavens and the earth in Jesus at the end, but it's going to happen in such a way that no one is prepared. No one will know. It's not for us to know. And therefore, every single generation since Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, every single end-time prophet has said and thought, we are the last generation. We have the date. We have the calendar figured out, and they've always been wrong. So does the coronavirus signal the end of the world? It's the apocalypse. No, I think the Bible tells us in books like the book of Romans that what this virus, once again, this pandemic signals is what it has always signaled to the church over 2,000 years with so many plagues and pandemics and viruses. It points us once again to the fact that the human heart and the world around us is broken. We spoke in our Two Crown series about natural and moral evil. That is what it points us to. That our hearts and this planet needs Jesus. So what we should be doing is we should almost be, think of sport, you know, whether it's rugby or cricket or soccer or hockey or whatever it is. We are supposed to be like players in the last couple of minutes of the game. We should be poised For action, we should be focused. We should be going for it. We should not be sitting on the sidelines, scrutinizing the details, trying to figure out, you know, it's this thing connected to that thing in the Bible. That's not the point. Why? Because number three, what does that result in? What is the result of this kind of obsession over the details? And I think all the strange charts and badly designed websites and videos that people send you and all these people saying, I think very arrogantly, every single time something happens in the world, we have full knowledge of what's going on. We have the full scope. This points to that, and this means this. And if you look at the QR code at the back of the Pope's neck, it means that this company is taking over this place, and this vaccine is, you know, the mark of the beast, and... I think all of that always leads to the same thing, that people in the end feel paralyzed, scared, and confused. And I think this whole industry of these end-time prophets in our country and globally, they profit. They make money off of people's paralysis and fear and confusion. So again, that's why Jesus says, from the horse's mouth, when he speaks about these kinds of events, In Luke 17, 23, he says, they will say to you, see there and see here. But he says, don't follow or run after them. For as the lightning flashes from horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. As the lightning strikes, so the end will be there. Whether it's in a 100,000 years or in five minutes, it's going to happen. Don't you think it's interesting that Peter, under the inspiration of God, we believe writing here, he doesn't feel any pressure to color in that statement. He just says, the end of all things is here, and that's enough. That's where he leaves it, because he says, we have bigger fish to fry at this moment than trying to make a chart and a date and a video and some strange prophecy. That's not the point. 
We have to come to a place of maturity in how we read the Bible, where we realize, as we always say, there are three circles of how we read and interpret. The first is the foundations of our faith. Those are the things that we know. It's accurately taught in the Bible. It's repeated very often about Jesus and who God is and his nature and the church and his people. Those things we know and we build our lives and our church and our marriage and our future and our vocation on those things. But then there's a second circle, not the foundation, but the interpretations. Those are things that we say, listen, the Bible, it gives us clues. There are some verses and some thoughts, but we're not exactly sure. There are differences of interpretation in these second circle issues. And then thirdly, third circle issues are not foundational, they're not interpretation, but they are speculation. We don't have any idea. It's fun to speak about those things. No one should stop you speaking about them, but we don't spend our time and energy on them. We live with the foundations in mind. And so the one extreme is that people obsess over the details of Peter's statement. But the other extreme, I think that many people are in, as Christians, is instead of obsessing over the details, they ignore the truth of his statement. And so while some Christians are living as if we have all the detail of what the end means, Some Christians are living as if we have no detail of what the end means. And so that's when we start living like practical Christian atheists. Yes, Jesus is, you know, he's great enough in my heart that I will go to church maybe once every five weeks. But he's not Lord and Savior enough in my heart so that it actually changes anything about how I spend my money, how I express my sexuality, how I tackle relationships, how I think about my future, how I run my my household, how I think about the vocation that God has given me. None of those things are actually influenced. And in most of those areas of my life, you cannot tell the difference between my life and the average non-Christian's life. It looks exactly the same. And the Bible calls this a love for this present world. So Paul at once says, he's writing to his protege, Timothy, and he says, one of my companions on one of these trips that we went on to go and share the gospel all over the Mediterranean, he says, this guy's name was Demas. In verse 10, he says, because Demas had deserted me, he left me. He left the mission. Why? Since he loved this present world. There's a difference between loving God, worshiping God, and enjoying the things that he's given us. We should enjoy every good thing that God has given us. But there's a difference between that and and worshiping, loving those things so much that we get sidetracked to think that the next couple of decades is all that there is. And if I don't die with the most toys I've lost, some people obsess over the details. Some people completely miss the fact that, yes, Jesus is coming back. And whether you die first or he comes first, there will be a day where as a Christian I stand and God will judge the work that I have done with what he has given me. But I want to just quickly, before we jump into what Peter says, there's a third reaction. And it's not got anything to do with Christianity. I think it's where our culture is. What's the secular view on this? Because in our culture, there is no belief in any kind of end of human history at all. Instead, what we have substituted that idea of of a final judgment, a final end, 
We've substituted that with what most sociologists would call the myth of progress. The myth of progress. Everything is going to get better and better and better as long as we can just figure out how to get better methods and better techniques and better therapy and better self-development and better science and better technology. We are going to, as the human race, just march, you know, step by step to a greater utopia eventually. I think this was so beautifully exemplified by a book two years ago that the famous uh, you know, psychologist Steven Pinker wrote at Harvard University. It's called Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. And in this book, he says, it's because we have left the shackles of faith and all these old ideas, and we've embraced humanism and cold, hard rationalism and scientism, not science as a tool, but science as a worldview. He says, it's because of that that we are seeing just the world going from strength to strength to strength. Everything is just getting better and better and better. And people rally around it and say, yes, you see, that's what we need. That's the end. But beside the fact that so many other secular academics have taken Pinker to task, they say, listen, you are giving us, all of us, a very one-sided picture of this. Because yes, if you read the research one way, yes, we are making great progress in so many things. Life expectancy and life quality and, and, and better science giving us medicine and so many things are a blessing. And as a Christian, I say, praise God for that. Because that's what the Bible says, you know, it calls it the common grace of God. He gifts us with the capacity and the abilities to do these things and we should. But they say, if you look at just the other side of the facts, there are so many things as some charts are climbing, some charts are steeply declining and it's deeply worrying. So for instance, they say, you know, you're not looking at something like environmental overshoot. So as Pinker in 2017 was finishing up his book, more than 15,000 scientists from 184 countries gave this dire message publicly to say, listen, the time is nearly up for us. If we don't realize that for the sake of profit alone, we are excavating and taking so much from the earth, it does not have the capacity to replenish it anymore. We are driving ourselves into extinction. Or secondly, they say, what about income inequality? You're ignoring the fact that not only is income equality not coming closer, it is widely divergent. And they say, if you look at how things are going now, at the same pace, it's going to take us about 250 years for the bottom 10% of the people on planet Earth, the, the poorest of the poor, to simply get to the world standard of just $11 a day. Or thirdly, they say moral degrade. Yes, in his book, he says that the online searches for, you know, sexist and homophobic jokes have gone down over the last couple of years. And that's great. We need less homophobic and sexist people in the world. But at the very same time that the online searches for that have gone down, the online searches for things like bestiality, sexual activity with animals, videos of decapitating people, and and online child pornography, all those things have actually steadily risen again. They've skyrocketed in the same time. So the question is, without something like a moral lawgiver, how do I think about progress? Are we making progress as the human race? And I would say, as the Bible would say, the answer is yes and no. Yes, through science and through the, the intellect and the gifts that God has given us, we are making great strides in the hands of humanity. 
But I would say you can definitely see it still in the heart of humanity. There is as much depravity and brokenness as ever. So Peter comes and he says, I reject Christians obsessing over the end time theories. And I object with, you know, Christians obsessed with the present world. I'm just going to be in love with everything happening here and now. That's the only thing. And he says, and I object to, I reject those who say that if we simply have better technology and science, we will fix everything inside and outside the human heart. And he comes and he says, rather, I want to state the truth that we don't have all the details, but we know this, that Jesus has come to this earth as the clearest representation of God that we know. And we saw him teaching. We saw him healing. We saw him breaking open the kingdom for us while he was on earth. And we saw him with our own eyes getting crucified. We saw him resurrected. We saw him starting the church, pouring out the spirit over his people. And yes, he is coming back. God's project of the new heavens and the new earth, he will complete Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, everything has changed. And it will be brought to completion. And we live, Peter says, in that in-between time. So let's roll up our sleeves. He says here, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded. That's how you should live. Right at the end, why? So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. Live your ways. Live your life. Live your career and your family and your goings and doings in such a way that you are not paralyzed by all these scrutinizing. That you are not distracted by a love for this world. That you are not given false hope by just humanist optimism but that you would say because of who Jesus is and what he has done and will do, I will give everything in my life to make him great. This is the moment that Dr. Strange tells Tony Stark and he says to him, we are in the end game now. So live in that light. Peter says we're in the end game. And so just really briefly, he says there are three things that I want you to focus on in the end game. Number one, in the end game, in the end of all things, whether the next hundred thousand years or the next 24 hours, prioritize knowing God. Prioritize knowing God. He says be alert and sober-minded. He says throw away your spiritual bottles and sober up. Roll up your mental sleeves and what? Pray. He says, pray, nurture in this time, closeness with God, identity with God, a love from and a love for God. Make time in your week. Instead of having an end time calendar that looks forward to some obscure date, have an end time calendar in your heart that says every single day, I want to make time For God, I want to know him because in this crazy coronavirus time, there is a massive difference between having my foundation be knowing about God and actually knowing God. You know, the other day I was out just walking in our neighborhood and instead of listening to a podcast as I would often do, I just had this this worship album 
this, this playlist. And at one stage, this song, man, it started so ministering to my heart. I felt the Holy Spirit just speaking to me. I started praying and just hearing from God and worshiping Him. And literally, I just burst into tears. As I was just walking the streets of our neighborhood, I was, I was so, I was bawling. You know, some people probably walk past me thinking, man, this guy is going through a very, very difficult time in his life. I was not going through a difficult time. I was going through a wonderful time because God was just so tangible in my heart in that moment. And in this season, that is what I need. I need the foundation, not just of knowledge about God, but I need God himself. And here's the beautiful thing about Christianity. If you don't understand this, you will think that Christianity, like all other world religions, say, build your tower up to God in good works. Pray, meditate, give, fast, and then you build and build and build. One day you will reach God. But the Bible says, no, you cannot do that. You will never reach God. God has reached into our brokenness and mess and sin and rebellion through Jesus Christ on the cross. So here's the gospel answer. Why do I prioritize in the end game knowing God? Because God has first reached in and removed all the obstacles for me to know him. I make time to know him because he has first made that available to me. And secondly, Peter says, in the end game, prioritize not just knowing God, but loving people. He says in verse 7, above all, maintain what? Constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Peter is saying, Dr. Hatfield, listen to me. As I spoke to this church, the, the pressured and persecuted church of Asia Minor 2,000 years ago, I speak to you today. You have to work in this moment at being a loving community. Because he says, I know that when the dark cloud of stress and economic realities and people losing their jobs and their lives, people close to us, when we are suffering as a community, our natural instinct will be to scatter, to abandon each other, to to go into our little caves and feel sorry for ourselves and, and look at everything that everyone's doing wrong in the church and feel sorry that, you know, people are not reaching out to us and doing this and that. And Peter says, please, can I ask you, don't allow that to happen. Work at being a loving community. He says, in fact, we do this because it covers a multitude of sins. He's not speaking about God's forgiveness of our sins. He's speaking about our interpersonal sins. Friends, let's be honest. Over Zoom and WhatsApp and it's all text messages and it's all online. And those are the realities we're facing. This is a once in a lifetime event for us as the global church. It's so easy to get offended now. It's so easy to miss each other. I've had so many miscommunications with people in the church. While we misjudge each other's hearts, we're under pressure emotionally, spiritually, physically, and Peter says your instinct will be to run, but what you should do is band together. Love one another. And he says, don't do it begrudgingly. <laughs> no, he says, I'll give you one example. Be hospitable. Open up your home in their context. We can't do that now. So here's what I want you to do, Dr. Hatfield. In this week, 
You're going to make time to be with God. But I want you to pick up the phone and call someone. Zoom, drop off a gift at someone's house, take food, pray over the phone, reach out. Not you waiting for someone else, but you doing that. Be proactive and ask, how can I love people in this church? Peter says, don't do it because Joe asked you. Don't do it because you feel guilty. Don't do it to win brownie points with God. No, he says, do it without complaining. He knows that if we do something from the outside in, it will not last. But if I ask myself, why would I love other people in the church? Because the gospel says that God first loved me. Why would I open my home, as it were, to the stranger? Because God, the gospel says, opened his kingdom to the stranger first. So do it from the inside out. Love people in this church because they desperately need it in this season. You know, our community group, one of the couples, they're going through incredibly difficult things at the moment. And people just started bringing them food and food and food and food. And I asked the husband, please post a photo of that on our community group because I want people to see that culture. That's what we do. One of the other couples in the church, the wife has got COVID-19 now, tested positive, and the people in the church just stood up and said, how can we support them? Bring them food, be there for them. This is what Peter is saying. Love one another. In the end game, that is what you give yourself to. And then finally, in the end game, prioritize not just knowing God, not just loving people, but making an impact in your world. Verse 11 says, just as each one of you has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Can I just ask you, what has God placed in your hand in this season? And some of us want to immediately say, but so many things have been taken from my hand. My bank balance has shrunk. My resources are depleted. My emotions have been robbed. All these things have happened to me. I don't have what I used to have. And I want to say that's true. None of us have. But God has still gifted you what is in your hand at the moment. And Peter says, when I live with the end game in mind, then I ask myself, how can I, between my my fellow colleagues, how can I in my family, between my friends, how can I in the church, in the city, How can I serve others with what I do have? And he says, do it in a way that it speaks of God. You know, one of the couples in the church, they just phoned myself and Shay up and one of the other couples in our complex and said, listen, we are just bringing you guys food. We just felt we want to bless you. And it was so beautiful. As I asked him about this, he said, listen, it's because this is something that we love doing, opening up our home and we can't do it at the moment. So if we can't bring hospitality to us, we are bringing hospitality to you because the gifts of God in our hands, we can give to others. One of the lawyers in our church helped one of the couples in our church going through difficult issues in their work. He assisted and stood with them. That is saying, God, what have you given me? How can I serve others with it? So let's just finish off. As I encountered the section the first time, I thought, why this? (laughs) Why would Peter speak about the end of all things? But I realized it's for this reason. Because for us as Dr. Hatfield in South Africa, in the world, as it was with the early church, when it feels like the world is coming to an end with everything happening around us, 
What we need is not to be paralyzed with conspiracy theory, to be distracted by an obsession with the world and its scoreboard, or this blind optimism that everything's just going to work out. What we need in these times is a stronger foundation and a clearer direction. That's what we need. And listen to how Peter puts it. He says right at the end, verse 11, to him, to Jesus, be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The glory and the power. The glory is what a word that speaks of the king. Jesus is the king. He sets the direction of my life. But it says the power. The power speaks of the fact that he's the savior. He saved me. He freed me. He has empowered me. He has spoken his love over me. He has called me his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. A Christian is someone who lives on the foundation of the grace of God and under the kingship direction of Jesus. He is both my savior and my king. So how do I live when the world is coming to an end? I think of the prayer that Reinhold Neuber wrote called the Serenity Prayer. And it simply says this, God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. I can say today, I cannot fix the economics of our country single-handedly. I cannot eradicate COVID-19 single-handedly. I cannot address racism in our country single-handedly. I cannot revamp our political system single-handedly. I cannot will a vaccine into being single-handedly. But what I can do is I can nurture a close relationship with God. Why? Because he first loved me. In the end game, I can love the people of Doxedale Hatfield emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Why? Because God first served me in that way. And thirdly, I can use the gifts that he has given me in my immediate circle of influence and bless and serve those people every week. Why? Because that's what God first did for me. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's how we live when the world is coming to an end. Let's pray. Jesus, may you invigorate us in this season. In spite of everything happening, God, may we not be paralyzed by schemes and plans. May we not be distracted, but may we just know, Jesus, that yes, you are the King and the Savior and you are coming back. And we, God, want to live as a church, knowing you, loving those around us and making an impact in our world to your glory in everything. Amen. Amen.